Ethan and Benjamin Castle are Americans. Watching the footy. Liam Ryan saying, kick it my way. I want to jump over the pack and here he comes. Welcome back to Americans Watching the Footy for our 25th episode, our round 10 recap. We're through the first part of the Sir Doug Nichols round. We're approaching the halfway point of the season, and we're learning... I think it's what- fair to say... Ah, break kick, Benjamin! Interruption! Seriously? We're calling those now? Ah, that's 50! Descent! Oh, for fuck's sake. Ah, another 50! You've given me a shot in the goal square when I was in the back half of the oval. Nice job, Ethan. Considering how bad the umpiring was this round, especially in the Hawthorne-Brisbane game, I think that was probably the least egregious umpiring over the last week. What's amazing is as bad as the umpiring was, that was still a great game, and there was still a lot of great football that, you know, this league and this sport are just so fun that even terrible, terrible umpiring can't ruin it. And we're probably getting 50 meters for descent for even implying that the umpires were bad, because, you know, they're they're fragile they're delicate, and we have to be very gentle with them. I'm thinking more that it's Brad Scott being fragile than the umpires themselves. But maybe our perception of the game still being this great with the umpiring being the way it is. Maybe that's sort of our seppo naivete showing just because that's not the reaction I'm seeing online from Australians and others who have been watching this game longer than we have. And I don't know how we haven't introduced ourselves yet formally. I am Benjamin Castle. I'm Ethan Castle. We're here in South San Francisco, California, ready to wrap up round 10 of the 2022 home and away season. A couple of general observations. Seems like every week we learn less and less and are left with more and more questions rather than answers. And I think at this point, it's safe to say the gap from the number one team to the number two team in the competition right now is bigger than the gap from number two down to probably about number 11 can make a case for a lot of different teams for being number two. We know Melbourne or NARM are number one. You could argue probably seven or eight different teams for who's the second best right now. We'll get into all that, but first we've got nine games to break down, so rather than waste any more time trying to do a cold open as if we're actually funny or something, let's get on to breaking down the Friday night round opener between Carlton and Sydney. How about it? Well, these are a couple teams where you could probably make that case, especially for the Blues after they had another brilliant second quarter and held on, ended up being Carlton 15-12-102, defeating Sydney 13-9-87 in front of an excellent crowd at Marvel Stadium, nearly 45,000. And it's clear that Harry Mackay's absence isn't affecting the Blues a whole lot because Charlie Curnow has picked up the slack, and so has Corey Durden. I've been so fascinated with Durden. He's been really fun to watch over the last few weeks. 
I think if I was to assemble like my favorite 18, just 18 players I really enjoy watching, maybe not the best, but most compelling, he would certainly be on that list. Man, Corey Durden and Ryan Myers in the same lineup. What a sight that is to behold. Anyway, Carlton opened up a 38-point lead in the second quarter, had that advantage at halftime. They outscored Sydney 57-18 in that period, kicking nine goals. They were up 36 midway through the third, but led by just 17 after the quarter and saw that lead shrink all the way down to nine as the Swans went on a 27-0 run to cut the lead to 93-84 with eight and a half minutes left. But the Blues put that game away from there. They advanced to 8-2 behind Charlie Curnow's six-goal performance, plus a couple more from Corey Durden. But it's not just their forward talent. I thought they had players step up and have really good games all over the ground, and the numbers reflect that. Sam Walsh with 34 disposals and six intercepts. George Hewitt, 32 disposals, 17 contested possessions and seven tackles. Absolutely huge in his revenge game. I expected him to step it up a notch regardless of the opponent. I think he had been trending very positively going into this, and I don't think we really value just how deep Carlton's midfield is going into this season, and we're seeing them reap all sorts of rewards from that now. You got Walsh, Hewitt, quieter game comparatively for Patrick Cripps, but it mattered not. Sam Doherty, 21 disposals, 6 marks, 693 meters gained. Matthew Kennedy, 21 disposals, 5 tackles, and a game-high 11 score involvements. Tom DeConing had a really big fourth quarter. At least three of his contested marks came in that final period, if not all four. And frankly, yes, the Swans had their stretch kind of from the midpoint of the third to the midpoint of the fourth, but Carlton were just the better team up and down, and I don't think a lot of people would have expected that even with a healthy Harry Mackay, but this now makes three weeks out of four where the Swans just haven't been at their best. Was really disappointed with Pete Laddams in this one. Expected him to be able to take more advantage of what we both perceived as a weaker ruck matchup, but Tom DeConing more than held his own. He had 23 at Carlton's 31 hitouts. Carlton ended up plus seven in that regard, which is not something I would have expected at all given how Tom Hickey has been going. And how, given how Tom Higgy has been going, and how the Blues have been struggling in that regard without Pittenet. Not gonna lie, I find Peter Laddams to be one of the easiest players to root against. That means something different here. Between the dyed hair and the mustache and just his general overall appearance, and mostly the punch to Tom Lynch's groin a couple years ago, that still stands out to me. So I've never been a big Laddams fan. I usually do think he's pretty talented, though, and that talent was nowhere to be seen in this game. It was also a surprisingly poor game for both the McCartan brothers. Yes, Patty did end up racking up his share of intercepts, finished with nine of them, but this was not his best game. The McCartan brothers were getting beat in the forward 50 by the Blues forwards. They were giving up freeze left and right. They were letting Kernow get pretty easy marks. Tom was really struggling in one-on-one matchups. Not sure if that was because of the particular players or because he's just less experienced in that regard. And Patty's greatest impact was early on, had his biggest intercept impact in the first half of the first quarter, I would say. But when the Blues started putting guys closer to him and they started going up with him for marks, he was largely neutralized. And 
That's something that I'm surprised hasn't been done more on him sooner. It's something that works against guys like the Eagles interceptors, and I would expect teams to sort of copy that strategy, but maybe they forgot about the Eagles interceptors because the Eagles aren't relevant this year. I will mention that Patty McCartan did have one night score involvement where he set up a sequence kind of playing further up the ground. I get why he doesn't go up the ground more because he's usually so valuable defensively, but he showed that he does have that ability and that should be credited. But one of the guys who really helped give the Blues the advantage, especially in that forward 50, even though his numbers weren't amazing, he didn't kick super well. He was a little bit unrefined, but that's to be expected for such a young player, would be Jesse Motlock. I thought he wreaked a lot of havoc and just created a lot of chaos that took Sydney out of their rhythm. And even though he ended up only kicking one three and not really doing anything numbers-wise that was that crazy, in fact, because he was off to get medical attention a couple times, he was on the field for a little bit less than two-thirds of the game. I thought he really impacted things and just took the Swans out of the rhythm they would like to have, even though this was just his second game. Seems like they were just unprepared for him, and that's kind of surprising given the young energy the Swans have all over the ground. Maybe it's because he was playing more forward, or maybe just wasn't on their radar. But on a Blues team where a lot of the players have a couple seasons in them, at least it's not a super new list, their focus seemed to be more on Durden than on Motlop, and they didn't really succeed against either. I will say, because he's so inexperienced, there's probably less of a blueprint for what to do against Motlop. Valid. But overall, there was just Carlton were the superior team in just about every facet of the game. Jacob Wietering played well. I thought Adam Chera and Adam Saad both had pretty quality games. Chera actually made one of the biggest plays of the game with a spoil on Nick Blakey that set up Zach Fisher to kick the dagger that put the Blues up 16 with a little under four minutes left. Chera and Saad both did their usual thing. Their ability to move the ball out of the back half was definitely noticeable. And again, Jacob Wiedering has just been one of the most underappreciated defenders over the last few years because he was on a crappy team. I don't think his stats are ever that big, but seven marks and five intercepts definitely tell some of the story of the impact that he had. But he was just very good one-on-one against Buddy. I know in a couple key situations, he held him off in the second half. There was one before Lewis Young got Peter Lattins for holding the ball. And there was a big intercept that he got in the middle of the fourth quarter as well. And when the Blues weren't going offensively, he was one of the players that really kept them at the head of this game the whole time. And when they were going, he was helping create some angles out the back, which Dockery exploited more. I also was shocked to find that Patrick Cripps' 14th goal of the year already set a career high. Maybe he was just not playing far enough forward under Teague's system. Maybe he was just being misused, but he's got such limitless talent. He's one of those guys that someone watching their first ever game would notice right away and say, I don't know what's going on here, but I know that guy's good. And someone who's been watching this sport for decades would be able to tell right away that he's really good. Whether you're looking at it through advanced numbers, whether you're looking at it through the eyeball test, There's no denying he is unbelievably talented. I think just having a deeper midfield, the additions of Chera and Hewitt there has allowed him to play more forward. And I think Voss's coaching is also a part of the recipe. I also didn't realize how big he is. 6'5", 209? Oh yeah, he's definitely a big guy. That meets the eye right away. That's usually pretty easy to notice. 
Don't know why that didn't click for me until this year. Maybe I just wasn't paying enough attention to Carlton overall these past two years, and I guess I can be excused in that regard, but definitely not now. A couple of quick stats to note for the Swans. Luke Parker did have 26 disposals, 9 marks, and 7 tackles. Nick Blakey, because they were starting from the goal square so regularly, including after those 12 behinds, he finished with 21 disposals and 640 meters gained. And then Logan McDonald kicked 3-3 and pulled in 10 marks. He's really done a nice job kind of in that supplemental role in Sydney's forward group where he's not going to get quite as much attention as someone like Buddy or someone like Keeney or Papley. And he's really able to slip through the cracks and make an impact. And I think he's really started to embrace that role and fill it out well. And in a stretch where not a lot has gone right for the Swans, he has played pretty well. He responded very well to being dropped, which I think was a poor list decision in the first place. But I don't think he's going to be able to be in that sneakier, less less noted role for long if he keeps up with his numbers. And even with the talent Buddy still has, it's not like he's going to be around forever. Buddy's already 35, and and even though he did have two goals in this one, the Swans don't exclusively run through him. And that is refreshing to see that they have a lot of options but they need to start using them more rather than still looking at Buddy first. It's like having a quarterback's route tree in American football, but they're dependably looking for that number one receiver the whole time when they might not always be the best option. I think the Swans are starting to look at those other players more, and I think that will result in a sort of positive feedback where fewer things going toward Buddy will make the times they do go to him more impactful and maybe not as predictable. One unsung hero for the Swans, whose numbers are extremely unremarkable, but if you watched the game, you would see that during that run from the midpoint of the third quarter to the middle of the fourth, he was involved with everything, was Justin McInerney. He really rallied them and got them into a position where what looked like a blowout turned into a game where they made Carlton sweat down the stretch. And if it wasn't for a couple of late misses by McDonald, who had played quite well to that point... Maybe they would have really had a shot. McInerney, no numbers jumped off the page from whatsoever, but he was huge in the second half. And you want you want to talk about a guy in that younger group that isn't noticed nearly enough? There's so much attention going toward Chad Warner running through the middle, Errol Golden with how rock solid he always seems to be, even though this was a quieter one for him as well. That McInerney is another one who's also flown under the radar, and I don't think that would be the case on any other side. You know, for a few weeks at the start of this year, Sydney looked so unflappable, so fundamentally sound, so smooth up and down the ground. Even in their loss to the Bulldogs, they looked fine. This is now not only three out of four losses, this is three out of four games where they really haven't played all that well. And other than the Essendon win, it's really been a while since they've had a strong all-around performance. What's going on here? I'd actually go further back and say that, and say that, that Essendon performance was the first really good game they had since round two against Geelong. Even when they managed to pile it on the Eagles, I don't think there were any games where they were really playing at their highest level. 
the full time. The run against Hawthorne in the fourth quarter strikes me more and more now as the Hawks running out of gas than it does the Swans suddenly catching fire. Not to completely invalidate how they played against the Eagles because they did really stick it to them. Yes, everyone's been doing that, but that one, you could make an argument that they played well that game, but it's been a while since they've had a really good stretch of performances and maybe... I don't know, were we too high on them after the way they started the year? Were we too high on them after they were such a pleasant surprise last year? Or are teams just catching on to them a bit more? Is it that second and third year for those players where coaches are able to really start seeing where they fit into the Swan scheme and start planning for and around them on different parts of the ground? That can often be the case with these upstart teams. They have a brilliant first year They may start strong in a second, but sooner or later, the league is going to catch up to them and catch on to them in some respects. I think that's happened lately, though. The Swans do have a chance to really erase a lot of those concerns in the next couple weeks because they've got such a tough schedule heading into the bye. They host Richmond on Friday night, and then in round 12, they play at the MCG against... They'll be back to being called Melbourne then, but the logo on the schedule does still say Narm, so we'll refer to them as both, but... The Swans are a team that I understand less and less of every week, and that's going to be a common theme throughout this episode, is we know less and less of what we thought we knew. To make matters worse for the Swans, Josh Kennedy, Josh P. Kennedy, I must clarify, has been ruled out for 8 to 10 weeks with a hamstring injury. He has just been having rotten luck these past couple seasons. He was going to be suspended for striking Sam Doherty, but it's going to be a lot longer than that for him. Won't hear from him again at the AFL level until, at the earliest, the final home and away rounds. But, sorry Dennis Green, they are not who we thought they were. And I think that's also the case for the two teams that play the next game we're going to talk about. That being Geelong and Port Adelaide. Geelong got back to their winning ways and it was a stinker for Port Adelaide. We were expecting a bit of a letdown for them after how brilliantly they played in the past four rounds and being against a tougher, more experienced side in a lot of ways at Cardinia Park, no less. Geelong is still having their signature kicking struggles as of late, and there were some questions about how they lined up, but they came through by 35 points, 11-16-82 to Port 7 5 47 I'll just start by saying it was very refreshing to see Gary Rowan back on the oval for them. One of the most pleasant parts of this game from a viewing standpoint, he didn't put up any sort of impressive numbers, didn't kick his signature two goals in a win, in fact didn't kick any, but he was very active on the ground. He got credited with six score involvements, and the most impressive part of his game, I thought, was the sort of defensive pressure he put on. He didn't let Port get out of their back 50 with ease at all. And created a lot of havoc there and ensured that for a lot of the game, the power just couldn't cleanly get up the ground. I will say the second quarter was just an awful term for Geelong. And the midpoint of the first quarter was pretty bad, too. They started all right. They finished the first quarter well. The second quarter was borderline unwatchable. Reese Stanley was laid out with ankle injuries. And because that sent Sam DeConey into sort of a backup ruck role, there were times when cats were completely out of position and there were throw-ins where they didn't have a ruckman to match up with Sam Powell Pepper, who, by the way, is one of the smallest ruckmen you'll ever see. Though he does a nice job in there, but they were so spread out where DeConey moves up and then that puts Stewart in a different spot and that puts five other guys in different spots that they were just confused and lost. And that makes you think, for one... 
clearly they weren't planning to pull Stanley out of the lineup. This was actually a last-minute change instead of some trickeration from Chris Scott. So that was another case where they probably should have simplified it and just kept Blitzovs in there. Although I get there are times when he's not on the ground. But it got to a point where because they were pulling DeConing up, they were putting so many other people in different spots. It looked like something you'd expect on the first day of training, but they hammered that out and made the necessary adjustments at halftime, took care of business. They were lucky to go into the half down one because they fixed things up at halftime. After not having a single mark inside 50 in the first half, they trailed 33-32 at the break. Would have been down more if not for a Hawkins goal inside the final minute of the first half that came off a pretty soft free kick. Todd Marshall scored on a set shot to open the third. The power had been kicking really well from set shots. And Marshall has been one of the most accurate kicks, period, these past couple years. Kept that up with two goals straight on just six touches. But the Caps scored the final 33 points to the third, capped off by a ridiculous Jeremy Cameron barrel from well beyond 50 meters after the siren to go into the fourth up 65-39. And they were largely in cruise control from there. Also during that third quarter, update the buck tattoo because Jake Kowalczyk kicked his third career goal. That also came from outside 50, though a good deal closer than what Jezin managed. But this is the first time that Kowalczyk has kicked a goal in a win. So air horns, party horns, whatever, he did it. I'm convinced that he just can't kick against teams from New South Wales or else the Cats will lose because his other two goals came in losses to the Giants and Swans, both very early in games. He scored in the third quarter against a team from South Australia, and things went pretty well. Jeremy Cameron was another one who, like Rowan, displayed a lot of good speed, good pressure all over the ground. He ended up actually gaining 629 meters. Usually doesn't get to do as much holding the ball, but it was nice to see him doing more than just camp out inside the forward 50 and wait for kicks to come in his way. It was a great game for Cam Guthrie with 38 disposals, 400 meters gained, and 13 score involvements. Tom Stewart doing his usual thing, though he got beat a couple times early, still finished with 27 disposals, 8 marks, and 13 intercept possessions. And it was also a really good showing for Brandon Parfit. I had been waiting for a big game from him for a while. He finished with 25 disposals, 8 tackles, a couple of nice spoils. And in the second half, the Cats just got back to doing what they do well. They let Brad Close run. They started some end-to-end sequences. That's how Joel Selwood got the goal that made it a 12-point lead. Tyson Stengel also got to show off the creativity and goal sense in the third quarter. Just letting him improvise around the posts is so fun to watch. He had a really nice shot to cut the lead to one after that Marshall goal, and it was just kind of in harmony with everyone while still being able to do his own freelance thing. And just the assignments were better in the second half. Mark O'Connor was able to neutralize Ollie Wines a bit more because in the first half, they weren't using him in that proper tagging role. It was refreshing to see the coaches come to their senses and realize this is what works. It's frustrating that they deviated from it so many times, though, because there's an obvious blueprint this team has to succeed. And whereas a lot of teams, you got to get creative, you got to really look for details. To find success for Geelong, you have to underthink it. It's very simple. You let Brad Close run. You have Mark O'Connor tag whoever their best player is. Tom Stewart racks up his intercept and ideally use Luke Dollhouse as the sub, although I'll have no complaints about Brian Myers getting in at the end of the game. Unfortunately, it sounds like Patrick Dangerfield may be out the next few weeks. Sounds like He was never fully healed from whatever this knee issue is, and they may sit him 
over the coming weeks. It's sounding right now. We're still a few days away, but it sounds very unlikely that it'll play next weekend against the Crows. Hopefully, he could get back in there against the Bulldogs before the bye, but maybe close to a month before we see him again. Fortunately, other than the Bulldogs, the upcoming schedule is relatively forgiving, although the Crows definitely look better this week. And we remember what the Crows did to the Cats to open last year. But I feel like we have this conversation off the air a lot where I think that Chris Scott outthinks himself a lot of the time, and he ends up playing chess with himself when he needs to just end up playing checkers. It's the reverse of what you have to think a lot of the time. Maybe he has this pervasive thought that we're too predictable, so we have to change things up. But if it isn't broken, there's no reason to fix it. And Brad Close's 10 score involvements are assigned that they ended up doing the right thing in the second half. Remarkable that he only gained 155 meters, but I think that's a bit emblematic of his role of being able to start a lot of sequences and create the lanes for the other players to gain ground once he hands off to Sharon. He had a couple great end-to-end sequences in the third quarter. Zach Guthrie was also involved in one of those handballing to Stengel to put the Caps up 20. Other notable performances, Isaac Smith had a nice first half, even though he seemed a step or two off from that sort of rhythm and synchronicity you look for. He still finished with 19 disposals, 6 marks, and 530 meters gained. And Sam DeConey with another 11 intercepts. He doesn't look all that big and strong to the naked eye, but he's able to get in there and throw his weight around and... He did a really nice job once again. He's been especially important with Jack Henry out and continued to make his mark on this game. I think that's the case for both the Deconings, that they're kind of unassuming in their appearance, but love to get in there, push other guys around, and I'm looking forward to them matching up against each other when we have our navy blue and white battle in round 18. The big numbers for Port, Dan Houston continuing his solid season, going between the halfback and the center of the ground. 30 disposals, 11 marks, gained 514 meters. Ollie Wines, quieter in the second half, still racked up 29 and 7 marks. Kane Farrell with another positive game. He's been in and out of the side a bit. I know that he was inactive for a bit in protocols, but he had two goals, 18 touches, gained 585 meters. Alir Alir had nine intercepts, but otherwise was quiet. He moved around a bunch, drew matchups on Jeremy Cameron for a bit, but Cameron had an excellent game, and it was Tom Clary who ended up being the one on Hawkins. I get that Alir is a player that you like to see moving around, but I'm still surprised that he didn't end up drawing closer more consistently with one of the Tom and Jerry duo. I will note that with Errol and Marshall finding their groove, this team has a bunch of really accurate goal kickers, and that's even with Miss Georgiatis sometimes being inconsistent and Charlie Dixon yet to play in a game this year. And Charlie isn't always the most accurate himself. We've seen him be one of those types of players where he makes the hard shots look easy and the easy shots look hard, eagerly awaiting his return to the main squad. Maybe this next round against Essendon, if you wanted to get in a game before a big clash against Richmond on the other side of the bye, but I would understand the decision to keep him out until after the bye. Mentioned Georgiatis' inconsistency. He went 0-2, and Jeremy Finlayson only went 1-1. That said, I don't think there's any reason to sound the alarm bells if you're Port Adelaide. They're fine. It was a stinker on the road. They happen. They had a stinker at home against Hawthorne. Unless they were to lose to a team that they absolutely shouldn't lose to, 
I don't think Port Adelaide's in bad shape at all. They're still going to be looking to make up a few points in the standings because of some of those earlier losses, but they put themselves in a position where they could afford a game like this, which was unfathomable a few weeks ago. And three of their final five home games, I'd say, are pretty favorable because they got Gold Coast, Greater Western Sydney, and Adelaide all at home. They do draw up against Richmond twice and Fremantle and Melbourne after the bye, but they're going to be in the mix one way or another. Speaking of not pressing the panic button, the Bulldogs don't need to panic after finally winning back-to-back games for the first time this year. But I'll ask you, Benjamin, since this was mostly your game, do the Gold Coast Suns need to panic as they've now lost three out of five? Firstly, it's remarkably sad to think that four and six is good for them at this point of the season. But no, I don't think they really need to panic. This was a game where they didn't do a lot of things right. A lot of the big names were quieter. Tuke Miller was always there, but never got really into things. Matt Rowell was very quiet on the ball, racked up eight tackles, but only had six touches. Levi Casbolt was inaccurate. No goals three. I believe that was his first goalless game this year. So Mabby Archol is now the only son to have kicked one in every game. Lockie Weller wasn't all that impactful, 17 touches, but didn't think much of them were meaningful. And despite that, they managed to hang in this thing the whole way. They managed to claw their way back into it a couple times, and it ended up only being a 19-point defeat. Bulldogs 15-16-106, defeating Gold Coast 13-9-87. The Dogs in some ways make up for the clunker they had in their first game in Ballarat a few weeks prior against Adelaide. It is worth noting, the 19-point margin is probably decently accurate. Maybe it should have been a little bit closer, but the score generally hovered around a 15-point margin most of the way. But the Suns did trail by just seven with a minute and a half left and could have made things really interesting had Ben Ainsworth put up a better kick with 110 left. He missed everything, and then Robbie McComb and Bailey Smith got insurance goals in the final 40 seconds to put the game away. McComb ended up having two. Bailey Williams had two, which was probably as much a shock for me as Casbolt not kicking any. Williams not known for his accuracy in front of goal and maybe got a little overzealous after kicking the first one because he had a couple bad shots in the middle quarters, but atoned for that somewhat with one at the end. Just another game where there were a lot of players going for the dogs. They had their normal players going well. Bontempelli was much more active and much more integrated at full forward, kicked three goals, two on 24 touches. Something can be said about the accuracy for him and the Bulldogs as a whole, but they looked more like themselves. The parts of this game that I saw, I thought Lockheed McNeil was very active, very involved. I thought he looked really good, and that's just a testament to how deep this team is. If you were to rattle off players off the top of your head, for the Bulldogs in order of impact, he would usually be one of the last guys out of the starting 18 that you would think of. Only 11 touches, but two goals won. He also had seven tackles, McNeil. And the stat halls just get more and more impressive from there. Ethan will go through those in a second. But the fact that we dependably have one or two players that we you know didn't think of in the weeks prior that comes up big for the Bulldogs is a clear sign of their depth. And even when they're struggling, they seem to have a guy that pops up that we didn't necessarily expect. That's always a good sign. The regular suspects did have good games for them. Bailey Smith finished with not just the goal, but 34 disposals and 722 meters gained. 
Jack McRae, another really strong performance, 34 disposals and 10 clearances. Adam Trelore kicked just 1-2, but finished with 26 disposals, 6 tackles, 483 meters gained. Marcus Bonimpelli did it all. He kicked 3-2 with 24 disposals, 8 marks, and gained 589 meters. Bailey Dale, 649 meters gained in 23 disposals. He's been really strong the last few weeks, and his performance has been part of this stronger run of play for them. Not only have they won back-to-back games, they've won three out of four in all. Josh Dunkley kicked a goal in a behind, 22 disposals, six marks, and six tackles. And how about Ed Richards' defensive performance? He was a player that we had both called on to step up multiple times this season, I believe, as far back as the home and away preview. And he more than delivered with maybe his best game in red, white, and blue. 20 disposals, 13 intercepts, 11 marks, active throughout the back half of the ground, and a little forward time as well didn't hurt him either. He is The fact that he is becoming the star of that back half is not a knock against Caleb Daniel in any way, who's still solid, but more a sign of Richard's continuing progress. And if he continues on that trajectory, he can definitely shore up a potential weakness in their defensive depth. I also thought he was bigger than 6'1", but maybe that's just everybody looking much taller and bigger relative to Caleb Daniel, who to his own credit had 19 disposals at 6 marks. The Bulldogs won this game. They were in the lead throughout, but as I hinted at earlier, even with some of their big names not delivering as much as they have in their two big recent wins, I don't think the Suns lost any admirers. They showcased some of their depth and had a couple of their more well-known players that just hadn't been impacting overall play as much recently reappear in some sense. David Swallow was the clearest example of this with his 25 disposals, 664 meters gained, and game-high 10 scored Malvins. He has a case for at least two votes in this one. Sean Lemons was the leading ground gainer for the Suns with 713 just shy of what Baz gained. He had 22 disposals and 11 intercepts. Charlie Ballard with 11 intercepts as well and 10 marks. The Suns flexing some of their defensive muscles. They may not be big muscles, but at least they have something back there at times. And round 10 was one of those times, I guess. And I mentioned Matt Rowell earlier. I'll just say it again. Eight tackles, was in the middle a lot, made the Bulldogs change directions a lot, but I would have liked for him to get a lot more of the ball than just six touches. What's he doing with all these Sharons he owns if he's never touching them? That doesn't sound right. The biggest story for the Suns, though, was sixth gamer Joel Jeffrey, who was the rising star nominee for the round. He kicked five goals straight, was the most active and visible player in the forward 50, was able to create space for himself a lot, and did good things once he got there. Also had a couple tackles as well, helping with the pressure there. He's not someone that I don't think we had mentioned once before this, and it's another good sign for the Suns that they have not just greater depth, but greater impact depth. We'll also note that one of those goals for we'll also note for that one of those goals for Jeffrey ought to be the goal of the week nominee. Kicked one of them over his shoulder after picking a Tim O'Brien handball. That said, we've seen the wrong goal of the week nominee get selected so many times that I don't have a ton of faith in it. I'm really looking forward to this game that they'll be hosting as they move out to Darwin for the next couple weeks, round 11 against Hawthorne. I think that's one of those sneaky, entertaining matchups that I remember a couple years ago in 2020, it was one of the few games that wasn't televised here. And it was like, okay, I'm not missing anything of consequence. Now this is a game that I've got circled. This could be a lot of fun. 
And I know we're jumping ahead a little bit talking about Hawthorne now, but they did show that they can hold their own for an entire game on a longer ground this past round. And TIO Stadium is just as long as UTAS. So expect a lot of running and still a decent amount of scoring in that one. Definitely a game to which I'm looking forward as well. But we're going to talk a lot more about that in our round 11 preview. We got a lot to get to before we get there, including breaking down six more games of this round. We'll jump ahead to the game that for some reason was in the standalone slot. Maybe it was just to promote the Norm Football Club, either with their skill or their renaming or their cool jumper design or a combination of the three. But surprisingly, this game ended up being decently close throughout. It reminded me in a lot of aspects of the game that these teams played last year in round seven at Blundstone Arena. That was Ben Brown's first game with the D's. This game was actually Brown's 150th. He looked really hungry for a goal, didn't end up getting one, didn't end up mattering because the Demons came through by 47 points. North 8-5-53, defeated by Norm 14-16, 100 on the dot. That said, 47 is a misleading margin. If you look at the score at the end of each quarter, it won't it won't do much justice for North. But they led 30-29 early in the second. They ended up trailing by 20 at halftime to clip that deficit down to six early in the third. And it wasn't until late in the third when the Demons really ran away. They finished the game on a 43-2 run. North did ultimately run out of gas. But this was a much better performance for them, and this is something to build off after weeks of just looking disoriented and lost. If they could give me this every week, give you two good quarters, keep you entertained into the second half, I would say... That's a sign of progress, and it makes you think they're moving away from rock bottom. This was actually a pretty inspiring performance, and a lot of that centered around Tristan Jerry's return. They are a far better team with him in there. It allows Todd Goldstein to play further forward. He got a goal in this game, and they were actually able to match up with Gone and Jackson pretty well. In turn, they were able to neutralize one of the Demons' biggest strengths, I thought North's defenders played a bit of a better game, including Lockie Young and Josh Walker, who I thought were really lousy the week before. I still think Hayden has a long way to go, but again, there were signs here. And I think if you're North, you're going to love Nick Larkey because he's got so much fire. He likes to get into it. He's an aggressive player. He's got a temper. And when you combine that with a team that's playing well instead of just getting their asses kicked, it's something to be inspired by. It's like, we've got this young guy who's so full of energy, and we're showing signs of potential. And again, despite allowing 43 of the final 45 points in this game, they played like they belonged out there, and they deserve a lot of credit for that. That's the sort of performance that could result in beating some lesser teams, and hopefully we'll keep some eyes on them, because the attendance at this game was barely 13,000. A letdown for what this game was, not just for Narm, but also for the entertainment factor. Understandable considering how North have been going, but I'd be, but I'd, but I'd be very willing to go if I were North support to be able to see some of that future. I don't think the election being that day did in any favors though. But I was reading the blog, The Shin Boner, and one of the things they were talking about was how Larky ended up playing much, much more forward this round. They were comparing his heat map where he was pretty steadily on the left side in the 50 
to three rounds earlier where he was predominantly in the center circle, he's going to probably end up being that central taller forward for North once Todd Goldstein moves on, whether through retirement or trying to chase a flag somewhere because the man deserves it. I'd love to see him in the hoops and not just because of our shared background. Markey ended up with just the one goal on eight touches, but he was where he was supposed to be. He was getting involved in the ways he was supposed to be. And that is a great takeaway from this game. It was very good to see Jack Zebel be more prominent forward as well. He had a goal on 16 touches and six marks, so with his defensive capabilities showing in his spacing and marking strengths. Cam Zerhar, the high scorer for North with three goals, won. Also for the Ruse, Luke McDonald with 31 disposals and 640 meters gained. Aiden Core with 29 disposals, had 13 marks and gained 493 meters, but wasn't the greatest under pressure. Definitely still think there's something missing to his game, but he and North Melbourne have time to be able to work that out. Luke Davies-Uniak and Bailey Scott had 27 disposals each, Scott with 12 marks to go along with that, and Davies-Uniak with 6 tackles. It's almost like he belongs in the middle full-time rather than spending a quarter of the game at forward. I know the focus for a lot of people is on Jason Horn Francis, who had an active game himself, but Davies Uniac looks to be the player around who North are going to be able to build the most in the shorter term. For the victorious Demons, Clayton Oliver putting up crazy numbers once again, 45 disposals, 13 clearances, 6 tackles, and 621 meters gained. Christian Petraka kicked a behind for the 10th game in a row. Finished with 30 disposals and gained 616 meters. And James Jordan, 22 disposals, he gained 510 meters. This is probably the least we're going to be talking about any winning team in this episode and thus far this season because Melbourne weren't all that remarkable for a lot of the game, but they turned it on in the late goings of the third and throughout the fourth like we expected them to. Was unfortunate to see Tom McDonald end up, end up injured after kicking three goals and getting a couple opportunities to do more. Bailey Fritch continued his hot start to the season with three goals. He's one of just six players to have kicked a goal in every round this year. Kazi Pickett with a couple great goals and six tackles. Max Gaughan definitely grew into this game as it went on. Only ended up with three marks, but kicked a goal in the second half that definitely seemed to take a bit of a weight off him. But the biggest takeaway for me, and Toby Bedford played a good part of this game, had a goal one on seven touches. He's a player for whom I'm definitely developing a bit of a soft spot because he runs so well, provides great energy throughout the ground, and would probably be in the 22 for most other teams. But because he's on as low to the list as he is, he's pretty much the permanent sub. And he was this round, which makes you probably ask, why did he play so much of this game? Well, that's because Ed Langdon was subbed out early in the second quarter after being tackled pretty hard early on by Taron Thomas. It was a tackle that I thought was clean, just a good, hard play by Taron Thomas, who is always a harder tackler. But the umpire called a free for it being dangerous. Could comment on that further. Not going to here because my focus is more on Narm being without Langdon against his old side in Frio next round in all likelihood. We don't have the full news on his injury yet. Even though Frio, we're getting ahead of ourselves again a little bit here. A big letdown again. That's going to be a massive matchup. And not having Langdon for that is probably going to cause them to have to reconfigure their game plan a lot. He hardly ever leaves the ground. 
He is so vital to their movement along the wings. And I think you're going to see Narm moving a lot more through the middle, maybe being a little bit more predictable as a result. That'll work to Frio's advantage. But again, that's a topic for the Round 11 preview, which should be out in just a couple days. Look for it sometime, American Wednesday, Australian Thursday. Right now, though, we're going to shift toward the late slot on Saturday and start with the game that was definitely overshadowed by the spectacle of Dreamtime at the G, but one that seemed to be more and more of a talking point as the night went on in Adelaide hosting St. Kilda. I was more focusing on Dreamtime at the G, but I was dependably keeping tabs on this one because it was on Fox Sports 2, and I'm glad I did because the Crows once again showed well at home and were largely the better team throughout, but Max King and Brad Hill exist. The final score, once again, does not tell the story here. Adelaide ended up losing by 21, 9-15-69, to St. Kilda's 14-6-90. Not as noise, but they won, so noise in its own way. The Crows actually led this game until there were less than six minutes left when Tim Membry scored off a pack mark. St. Kilda finished this game on a 24-1 run. The Crows were largely the better and deeper unit, but Max King hit 6-0, and Brad Hill was a monster in his 200th career game, deservedly getting carried off after holding the Aboriginal flag. Great image to cap off a wonderful performance where he finished with 30 disposals, 10 marks, 586 meters, a goal, and got three votes for the Golden Fist on bounce this week. Bang! I've noticed for a while that Max King is one of those guys where his first shot really dictates how his night is going to go, even more so than it does for Tom Hawkins. And King hit his first. I thought, all right, watch out. I thought maybe he'd go, you know, 4-1, like he usually does on one of his better nights, but he was unstoppable. And Adelaide really lacked the proper body to match up with him. So when the Saints were able to get it into the forward 50, it was a really, really rough time for the Crows defenders. That said, Adelaide brought it after a few weeks of really lousy performances. So while the Crows have now lost four in a row, this was a much better performance than any of the prior three games. This was more akin to how they played in that first half against the Lions the week before. You had Ned McHenry and Shane McAdam both playing well. Jake Saligo getting his first career goal. Brody Smith looked good. I wasn't very impressed with Kieran Strawn in the Ruck, but Crows fans seemed to be much happier with him than with what they had gotten out of Riley O'Brien. Strawn did finish with five tackles and four marks, but had a few pretty bad clangers, as did Chase Jones. That said, this was the sort of performance you'd like to see from Adelaide, where the forward group does their thing, Ben Keyes is impactful. Brody Smith plays well. Jordan Dawson's running all over the ground. Got two goals to go along with his 516 meters gain. Smith actually well outgained him, getting 659. Might be the first time all year that Dawson wasn't the leading ground gainer for Adelaide, but good to see other players being willing to run with him and even more than him, helping lighten his load in some respects. I thought this was a game where the Crows were going to regret their poor kicking early and the Saints were just going to pull away and do their typical St. Kilda third quarter thing. Because the Crows went into half beating by 11 and despite kicking just 4-8. It was a 1-5 first quarter that really set the tone. But Adelaide fired back, went back up by 8 after Shane McAdams scored off the deck and then Jimmy Rowe scoring after Brad Hill was assessed a 50-meter penalty for delay of game when... 
I don't think he really heard the whistle or the call properly. We'll get more into that discussion later. That's kind of been a common issue we've seen with these delay of game 50s. But at that point, the Crows had an eight-point lead. And it turned into a really good back-and-forth affair from there. Crouch gave the Saints the lead less than four minutes into the final quarter. Then Josh Rochelle scored to put Adelaide up 55-52. Hill set up an open Mason Wood. The lead kept changing hands. We had a total of nine lead changes in this game. And I was hoping this would be one of those games where, you know, you'd have the video of the last two minutes and it would be a super memorable ending. And we didn't quite get that. But it was a really fun game overall. St. Kilda was up 66-55 after Cooper Sharman snuck one through. Taylor Walker's inaccurate kicks were piling up. And yet, Adelaide was able to go back in front when Walker finally ended his personal drought. And then just a couple minutes later, Jordan Dawson put the Crows back up after a poor Jack Sinclair kick under pressure. And at that point, we're thinking, all right, back and forth. This is going to be a crazy finish. And then finally, St. Kilda put the game to bed. Memory with the go-ahead goal. King with his sixth, then a miss by McHenry that kept it at nine instead of making it a one-goal game again. And then Ryder put the game away. Rowan Marshall got one last goal at the siren for good measure. And while the Saints were the authoritative better team in the last few minutes, this was a great back-and-forth battle. And I think this game is both a testament to St. Kilda for having individual players that can put the team on their back, like Hill and King did. They continue to show a lot of different ways to win games, while the Crows showed that they're not going to fade away quite like they did last year after getting off to a decent start to the season. You say that now. I think at the very least, they're going to be back to giving teams a good fight at home. I think that GWS game was an aberration. I hope they're spent from this game and don't put up much of a fight at Geelong next week. But I think it's pretty clear that they're a team that needs to be taken seriously. I think they're still going to steal at least one or two more games at home that's going to really fuck up someone's season, especially in a season where the difference between second place and 10th place is so marginal. And if they keep up playing like that, they won't be that far off of 10th themselves. And overall, this was just a super fun game where a lot of people were probably much more interested in dream time and election coverage. This ended up being the must-see event of the night. I know some Crows fans were disgruntled with some of their selection and how they didn't have anyone that matched up particularly well in the defensive 50 against Max King. I was happy nonetheless that Riley Philthorpe got another crack at it. Because Strawn was doing so well in the ruck, mostly spent time forward, ended up kicking one goal too. The Crows have more depth than I think a lot of people give them credit for. It's just that all of that depth is up front and there really isn't a lot defensively. Tom Duda had a couple of nice plays, but their defense still lacks a lot. And even though they didn't really select anyone to match up with King, I don't think they had many good options. They don't have a really good tagger, and that's where their shortcomings are. And if they're going to look good in other facets of the game and struggle there, I think that's something they can live with because they're showing signs of development elsewhere, and they know what they need to look for during the offseason to patch that up and turn this team into a finals contender, which they're probably only a year or two away from if they patch up holes at the right spots. Okay, which South Australian native is coming home? We will save that for off-season trade talent. Real quick, few stats to run through. Yes, he had turnover that led to a crucial goal, but 
Jack Sinclair had a pretty good game in a more defensive role. 32 disposals, 492 meters gained. Brad Crouch, 31 disposals and a critical goal. We already mentioned the big game from Hill. We mentioned Brody Smith and Jordan Dawson. Sam Barry, a game-high nine tackles. couple team stats of note. St. Kilda won hitouts 45-22, but Adelaide did pay clearances 36-29. And perhaps the nicest stat of the season, each team had exactly 69 turnovers. And speaking of nice, it's time for our very nice advertisement, if you're an American listener, because for some reason, Anchor doesn't put these through in Australia. Hopefully that gets hammered out soon. We like ad revenue. Or you can just give us money because you like us. Our support link is at the bottom of the episode description. At this point, a lot of you are probably already following our Twitter at Americans Footy, but if you aren't, it's where we give our thoughts during all the rounds and sporadically between them as well. We also each have our personal Twitter accounts. I am at BenjaminHK01 and we'll be hopefully more active there talking about a lot more music type stuff now that I have graduated and have got a bit more time on my hands. I am at Castle Media. That's Castle with a K, of course. And sitting next to me, available on Instagram at CatNamedGrian, is Brian Harambe the Footy Cat. As I've said many times before, I named him after the two bravest people I know, just like Harry Potter did. Also just want to thank the various podcatchers that make this available for all of you to listen to. We are doing this through Anchor by Spotify, but we also want to thank Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music, CastBox, Google Podcasts, Radio Public, and Stitcher, among others, and hopefully even more podcasters will be added to that lineup in the coming weeks. Before the break, we mentioned how great an image Brad Hill being carried off with flag in tow was. Also want to mention that he was carried off by two fellow indigenous players, those being Patty Ryder and Ben Long, which made the moment all the more special. However, that was only the second greatest photo of the round because the Richmond war cry with the whole team surrounding their indigenous players is probably the greatest photo we've seen from our two plus years watching AFL up to this point. And it was the start of a great night overall with 70,000 plus on hand for Dreamtime at the G, a game that retained intensity throughout, even though it wasn't necessarily that close all the way through. Richmond 11-14-80, defeating Essendon 7-6-48 in an affair that often got physical and left some with a sour taste in their mouth for that reason. I was obviously more focused on the aforementioned Adelaide St. Kilda game, but it seemed like every time I looked up and checked on Dreamtime, there was someone tugging at someone's jersey, players fighting, all sorts of drama, even though outside of the first quarter... The game wasn't that close. Richmond pulled away with a 32-13 second quarter, led by 26 of the half, and Essendon never really made a serious threat from there. They did cut it to 18, with six and a half left in the third on not-dead Ben Hobbs' second goal, but the Tigers outscored them 23-8 to the rest of the way, took care of business, and find themselves at 6-4, and four, having now won four games in a row. I want to keep the focus on Essendon for a bit, I think Hobbs having that jumper partially ripped off him after scoring that goal and being so animated was emblematic of a lot of Essendon's effort throughout the night, where they were always staying involved in the game, though maybe not necessarily through keeping the game close. They ended up starting a good amount of scuffles and responded very quickly when Richmond got in their way. When Toby Nankervis stuck around as the Bombers were getting around Nick Bryan, 
for his first career goal. Something big started there. There was too much extracurricular activity to keep track of all of it. Oftentimes you see those things go unpunished when it's more mutual, but Mason Redmond striking Dion Prestia with a too well-placed elbow just before halftime is definitely not neutral or balanced. He was suspended one game, and I think Essendon are just going to look even more exposed without him, considering he ended up with 29 disposals, 10 marks, and 950 meters gained. As much as there is to say about Essendon's lack of defense, lack of ability to stop anyone, Redmond is really good at sending play forward. And it's amazing because after Adam Sod's departure, they've really found other guys who can shift play from the back of the ground to the forward half. They have defenders with a lot of offensive skill. They're just, as we've said every week and as we continue to hammer home, they just really lack actual defense. Although... Their tackling wasn't quite as embarrassing in this game, if you were looking for positives. They were tackling at a much higher rate, ended up with more than double the tackles they had against the Swans. They had 64 there. Other notable stat lines for Essendon, continuing on the defensive front, Jaden Laverty had 13 intercepts. Clearly their most effective defender other than Redmond. Dyson Hebel was continuing his stretch of better form with 23 disposals, 8 marks, and 6 tackles. He definitely lit a fire under his team earlier in the week, and they responded well in certain aspects. However, Darcy Parrish's 43 disposals were largely just racking up the points for fantasy owners. He did have eight tackles of gained 572 meters, but it's another one of those games for him where even with all the times he had the ball, it didn't feel like he impacted the game nearly as much as he should have. I don't know how much of that's on him and how much of it's on where he's being deployed and how the rest of the team's performing, but don't just jump all over the stats and act like he had this incredible performance. There were some people who thought he was the best on ground on Anzac Day when he clearly wasn't. There are players that just accumulate stats, and he's not a bad player by any means. I think just about any team would benefit from his presence. He's just not as impactful as the numbers suggest. With the more physical side of the game being a negative for Essendon, it just drives home for me that the biggest positive out of the night was one of the greatest names in footy. Getting the recognition he deserves after having announced his retirement the day before. He greeted the team as they ran out. He was involved in the gift exchange. Was glad he had his moment before Essendon played in the jumper he designed. Really great to see just how much love, not just the team, but... Really, the whole AFL community has for him, not just an outstanding player and a fun one to watch, but a terrific guy. Hopefully, he serves as an inspiration for other Indigenous players, not just Tiwi Islanders, but players of Indigenous descent everywhere. Speaking of Tiwi Islanders, though, that's where the Rioli dynasty are from, and both Daniel and Morris Jr. had excellent games for themselves. Daniel continuing to flourish at halfback with 26 disposals while his uncle Morris, yes, his uncle, had two goals and five tackles and was once again one of the most entertaining players on ground. There was a great photo that they showed of Morris on the ground before the 2011 Dreamtime match, just eight years old then, already shining in the big time at 19. One of the things that makes this game and the Sir Doug Nichols round as a whole so special, and it's such a contrast to the violent nature that you often had on the field during this game. Other performers of note for Richmond, 
Liam Baker, 30 disposals, 9 intercepts, 475 meters gained. Jaden Short, 29 disposals, 9 marks, 451 meters gained. Camden McIntosh, 569 meters gained. Toby Nankervis, 20 headouts, 9 intercepts. And winning the Ayukin Award with 36 disposals, 6 clearances, 8 score involvements, and 503 meters gained, none other than Dion Prestia. Prestia strikes me as one of the most severely underappreciated players in this current game. Always a workhorse around the ball, but someone who is so regularly overshadowed by the likes of Dustin Martin in the midfield, among others. Glad he got his due respect there. Also want to highlight Jack Revolt's four-goal performance. He jumps up into a tie for 17th all-time with 735 goals for his career. He's also the all-time leading goal kicker in the dream time in the G games by far. He also had 10 marks to go along with that. However, Tom Lynch was not heard of nearly as much because he injured his hamstring, and it's likely he'll at least be out for Richmond's next contest, another big one, Friday night against the Swans, which is their last before heading into the bye. Couple of team stats worth noting. Nick Bryan, though he got his first goal, was not as effective in the center circle. Tigers won hit outs 36 to 20 behind the combination of Nan Curvis and Ivan Soldo. Soldo continuing his resurgence. Since returning to the main side in round seven, he's had five of his already career high seven goals for the season, and he's been a more than competent second ruck as well. And speaking of Nan Curvis, he took a pretty courageous spark that ended up being one of the nominees for this round as well. Spoiler alert, it shouldn't win this one, but he should have won goal of the week twice already. The tackling was better for Essendon, but they committed 97 turnovers and had just a 26.5% disposal efficiency inside 50. If it's not one thing going wrong for them, it's something else, but at least this wasn't their worst defensive performance. At least they showed signs of improvement on defense. Hopefully they can build off that while getting back to being more like themselves In the forward half, wouldn't count on it this coming week against Port without Redmond. But big picture, I still believe that they can pick up various pieces from different games this season, assemble them together and figure out, hey, this is what we look like when we're on our game. This is what we need to do. This is our pathway to success. Here's where we have shortcomings. Here's where we need to add players. And I'm going to keep hammering that up. They have had some pretty rotten luck with injuries and with Walla not playing at all this year. We expected a sophomore slump beginning for them. Perhaps we didn't expect it to be this severe, but next year is going to be the one that makes or breaks the Ben Rutten era. While next year is make or break for the Bombers, the West Coast Eagles are already broken. Let's talk about them. Let's also talk about the Greater Western Sydney Giants, who also knew that they were broken and decided to make a change sooner rather than later to see what they might be able to salvage from this season. And Mark McVay clearly made some good changes, though it'll be hard to gauge just how good they were until they face, you know, an actual AFL side. They were still lacking in defense, but had no shortage of goal scoring and no shortage of goal scorers with a grand total of how many, Hutto? 13! 13! (laughs) Every giant and their mother and their grandmother was involved in this one as they won 21-12, 138 to 13886 as much as the goal scoring was huge and James Peetling ended up with 3 of them my biggest takeaway for the giants was how refreshing it was to see Stephen Canelio thriving in the midfield again he played like he really belonged there 
McVay built the rest of the lineup around him well, and he ended up being extremely efficient and extremely involved. 36 disposals at 92% efficiency, 7 clearances, 6 marks, and 10 score involvements. When Canelio and his eyebrows go as well as they do, it's hard to imagine the Giants struggling as a whole, and they certainly did not on Sunday. The Giants scored 7 goals in a 45-point first quarter, 14 in an 87-point first half, and despite West Coast actually having one of their better offensive games, this one was never really in doubt. Stats of note for GWS, James Peakling was the only one with three goals for the Giants. They really shared the wealth. He also had 23 disposals, 14 score involvements and 11 marks. Harry Perryman finished with 30 disposals and 10 score involvements. Josh Kelly, 29 disposals, 9 tackles, 10 score involvements. Adam Kennedy, not to be confused with the second baseman who played mostly for California-based major league teams in the 2000s. 21 disposals and 9 marks. And as a team, the Giants had two-thirds efficiency inside 50. The Eagles' offense went reasonably well. I mean, they scored as many goals as they had in the prior two weeks by the third quarter. Ended up with 13 in total. Three of those came from one Isaiah Winder in just his fifth game, looking for positives anywhere I can find them this year. And the way Winder's come along these past couple Excited to watch his progress in blue and gold over the next few years, if not longer. A number of players were actually worth mentioning for them. It was a good bounce back game for Hugh Dixon. Had two goals. Didn't do any work in the ruck. That went to Bailey J. Williams and Callum Jameson, who ended up plus six on hitouts against pretty much exclusively Matt Flynn. Not sure how much those numbers would have swayed had Braden Proust been healthy, but positive signs there for a team that had been struggling in those stoppages with the beast that is Nick Natanui out. Connor West was very involved with five tackles. Liked what I saw from Jermaine Jones going up ground at times. Greg Clark continued his good form and finally got his first goal to show for it. Was very happy to see that. A lot of positives coming from the younger crop in the forward two-thirds of the ground. The back third, the numbers were impressive for the normal people, but that's because they were challenged so often. But those numbers are also misleading because defense need not apply in this contest as a whole. The 34 goals and 54 scoring shots speak for themselves. In past weeks, it's typically been an okay defensive showing for the Eagles, but absolutely nothing on offense. Or at least they would give up a few early goals and then settle down defensively. This time, that didn't happen. It was a really bad defensive performance. They've had games where they've given up more points, but there was absolutely nothing to speak of defensively there. Giants could basically move around anywhere they wanted, however they wanted, all game long. It was almost as if they were allowing a make-a-wish kid to go get a shot on goal. That's how easy it was. Jeremy McGovern had his usual activity for much of the game, but had a couple really simple errors, and Adam Simpson ended up slamming him for those on the bench, though. Looked like McGovern didn't really respond. Wonder if that's more a sign of McGovern's frustration or Simpson just having lost the team. The stat, or lack thereof, that sticks out the most to me as I look through this, Tom Barras, zero marks. It's weird. One of the constants for West Coast that's been there from their veteran crowd wasn't there. I was pleasantly surprised by some of the production out of their more seasoned midfield. Tim Kelly with 23 disposals and five tackles. Andrew Gaff got a decent amount of the ball. 
Luke Shuey was active for most of the contest, ended up with a hamstring complaint late, but hopefully should be able to go next round. But the veteran that stood out for me the most this one was Jamie Cripps. Two goals as part of his 14 disposals and seven tackles, even when a lot of the team isn't going well. There's never been any question about the effort that Cripps brings, and he's still got a decent amount of footy left in him, I think, at age 30. He's one of the guys that I hope the Eagles sit down at some point, hopefully as early as the bye, and say, you're still going pretty well. We think that you can do some good for us for sure, but we're likely not going to be contending again within the span of your career. Do you want to go for a flag elsewhere? I think he would relish the chance to play alongside his cousin Patrick or be with a part of any other contender, and I think he would be a good supplemental piece just about anywhere. I'll close this game out with two very concerning stats. Discounting the shortened quarters of the 2020 season, the Eagles became the first team since Footscray in 1967 to need 10 games to reach the 500-point mark. Oh, and their percentage actually increased in this game, despite losing by 52. All of those reminders of the ineptitude of the Eagles this year makes you take any progress that the Giants showed in their first game under Mark McVay with, as I've said before, the whole salt mine. They'll be thrown into the fire next time out against Brisbane, the Giants, and hopefully then we'll be able to get more of an indication of what really works for McVay. They'll have some time after that with North awaiting them after their bye in round 13. And hopefully we'll just be able to learn more throughout this season about what the Giants have going forward and whether their caretaker is the right fit for them. The middle game on Sunday, the penultimate game of the round, was one of the most entertaining games I've seen in a while, but also one of the most poorly officiated. As we alluded to way back in our intro with Hawthorne beating Brisbane, 18-9, 18-9, 117-17-10-112. Why was it so high scoring? Well, yes, both teams kicked well, but 63 free kicks. That's almost 100, and it felt like it at times. Every little thing was being called. I remember there was one called, I think it was just that little push for Lockie Neal against Jai Newcomb, I believe, where the broadcaster said that wouldn't be called an Oz kick. The umpires were taking too much control of this one in a game that didn't require that to be entertaining because when there were open passages of play, it was super fun. It was great seeing Chankwok Jaff return after four rounds out. All the runs and energy he provided out the back for Hawthorne translated really well going forward. And that was how they were able to get off to a nice start. Even though Brisbane led at quarter time by six, the teams were in lockstep throughout the first half, made for some really entertaining back and forth play. Brisbane jumped out to a 22-point lead in the third quarter. At that point, we were thinking Hawks might have run out of gas again on a long oval, but they surged back and were even on goals with the Lions heading into the last, down just four points, and then they made their push for the win, surprisingly enough. The Hawks took the lead for good after a long sequence of bad calls. First, Chad Wingard scored to put the Hawks up to with just under 17 minutes left. Then a really bad push in the back got called against Tom Mitchell, allowing Jackson Pryor to score from the right boundary on a pretty nice shot. Then at the other end, it evened out when Harris Andrews got called for holding Max Lynch, where either Lynch was holding Andrews or they could have just not called anything. Hello, Super Bowl Forty Seven. 
Lynch got the easy goal out of that. Then despite the Hawks finally missing from a set shot, a Harry Morrison chance from really close, they were able to get the lead all the way up to 16 behind Luke Bruce dribbling one in. And then out of a sequence where the Lions looked super undisciplined, including Dane Zorko getting whistled for running too far, Mitch Lewis scored from just beyond 50. That brought the lead out to 16. Jack Payne cut the lead down to 12 with just under two minutes left. But Charlie Cameron's poor decision to try a dribbler with 80 seconds left went wide for a behind. Zach Bailey got wrapped up by Jai Newcomb for an incorrect disposal that really put it away and rendered Dane Zorko's goal with just two seconds left meaningless. This was another great game for Jai Newcomb. 27 disposals, 9 clearances, 6 marks, 6 tackles, 664 meters gained. Tom Mitchell, a goal, 36 disposals, and 7 tackles. In a game where there wasn't a lot of defense because it was just nonstop free kicks, James Sicily still racked up 11 intercepts and 7 marks to go with his 24 disposals. I really liked the resurgence that Hawthorne showed after getting down by 22 in the third quarter. They went from down 87-65 on a goal by former basketballer Tom Fullerton. By the way, they mentioned just 18 seconds into the game that he's a former basketballer, but the Hawks came all the way back took the lead when Dylan Moore drew a high tackle 33 seconds into the fourth quarter, and it set up that fun back-and-forth sequence where the Hawks eventually pulled away. Even though he didn't have a ton of touches, Chankwath Jaff's influence on this game was noticeable the whole way. They play so much faster with him there. They're able to slingshot forward quickly. Even if he's not touching the ball, his sheer presence impacts the game. But I want to know how much of it was him and how much of it was just them having the confidence to play that way. Could they have still played that way without him? I'm not entirely sure myself. I think Jack provides such a spark to the Hawks that, that his presence definitely imbues some confidence to them. Their best form at the start of the season was because they operated through him, and that showed again here. On the offensive end, just want to bring up Mitch Lewis again. Had four goals to lead the pack in this one. And I was actually impressed by some of the little things he did. When Zorko ran too far, it was because Lewis cut off an angle where he would have been able to more cleanly either kick it or just bounce it and get more of a run. Instead, Lewis was a beneficiary by getting the free and kept up with his accuracy. He's been one of the most consistent goal kickers when he's gotten a crack this year. Has a pretty lengthy streak at this point of consecutive games played with a goal, and his return a couple rounds ago has also been vital to Hawthorne's success. Stats of note for the Lions, who took just their second defeat of the year, Daniel Rich, 33 disposals and 919 meters gained, even though he got banged up a couple of times. The appropriately named Jared Lyons, 32 disposals, 9 clearances, 7 tackles and 6 marks. And Kadeem Coleman, 26 tackles and 8 marks. Behind Oscar McInerney, the Lions won hit out 71-27, though Hawthorne did win clearances 43-42. Max Lynch just got his ass kicked in the center circle, and while I know he's an okay player and he's doing a nice job filling in for Ned Reeves, I personally just think Lynch kind of sucks. I think in every sport, you're allowed to have a player where you have a lesser perception of them than everyone else. Like in baseball for me, that's Wilson Ramos and Charlie Blackman. Max Lynch is that guy when it comes to footy. He's okay outside of the center circle, but he just gets his ass kicked in every rock contest. Was really impressed by the Hawks managing to be so successful in the clearances. Even with Tom Mitchell and Jai Newcomb continuing their success there, they had a joint high nine clearances each. 
Just with the hit-out numbers being the way they were, I expected the Lions to be able to take more advantage, but Mitchell reminded us of his Bradlow medal form from just four years ago. I know he's not a player that you noticed for the past couple years, but I'm glad that you're starting to definitely do so now. Newcomb, meanwhile, strengthening his case for the rising star. I've been impressed by him ever since the Easter Monday game where the Hawks beat Geelong, even though that was their last win up until this one. They had dropped four in a row before this. He's shown up every single week. He continues to deliver, and I'm glad he's getting the recognition he deserves because he's such an effective midfielder, moving the ball, winning possession from opponents. He's one of the more noticeable midfielders. There are a lot of midfielders who maybe do quieter things to impact the game on a profound level. He not only impacts the game significantly, he does it in ways that everyone notices from start to finish. Your eyes are on him all game. I'd say your eyes are less on a player like Lockie Neal, even with how effective he is because of how seamlessly he's able to get the ball to others. He ended up not having huge numbers in this one, did kick a nice goal, had 25 touches, six tackles and seven clearances. Jared Lyons actually led the way in that regard, as you mentioned, with his nine. But Brisbane as a whole were just shockingly undisciplined in this one. It's not something I expected from them at all. Even with the umpiring being as poor as it was, I feel like the plus nine margin is at least somewhat representative of the sort of uncleanliness with which Brisbane handled themselves on and off the ball. And I'd be shocked if that's more than a one-off situation for them. But if there was a reason within their control that they lost this game, that was it. I also thought despite having pretty good numbers on the surface, it was a pretty poor showing for Hugh McCluggage, though he did have a really nice smother shortly before he hurt his hamstring. Hopefully that opens up some opportunities for Mitch Robinson to be more than the injury sub. Would like to see him more. One thing the broadcasters pointed out, it could be a reason that Brisbane struggled, and instead of fitting their hashtag uncaged, they were more unglued. They're not used to playing from behind, so when they get in a hole, it puts them in a really shaky spot that they're just unfamiliar with and uncomfortable with. And they looked uncomfortable in this game. That might be a common trend as well with some of their finals losses, where they've gotten behind and just have no idea how to dig themselves out of it. Fascinated thinking ahead to the matchups that they'll have with Fremantle, with Narm, if that's going to be the case again, because they're a very complete side. I think they have one of the strongest cases to be that second best team a discussion we'll get into after we talk about the last game of the round. Another one where a team that's been going well for most of the season just seemed to be rudderless when behind. For the second week in a row, the Fremantle Dockers were confronted by their greatest enemy, water falling from the sky. There was a massive downpour shortly before the game, which left the ground basically waterlogged through the first quarter, though it actually drained pretty well after that. The rain stopped falling by the end of the first quarter, but the conditions had their impact on the Dockers, who lost at home to Collingwood, 6-8-44 to 12-8-80. I was expecting a thorough bounce back from Frio after their shock loss at Metricon Stadium. Don't seem to be adjusting their style at all to the elements. They're trying to go the same way still. It's just the fundamentals of moving the ball up the ground, and it just simply doesn't work. Having said that, Collingwood's pressure was excellent. And that bred success in contests and clearances. They were the better team from start to finish. And credit to them for giving such a good performance on one of the toughest trips, if not the toughest, in the competition. 
First off, conditions are not an excuse for Fremantle's lack of structure or instinct. I understand how wet conditions could affect a team that likes to run a lot. I don't think their handball ability was impacted as much by the wet conditions. In fact, you'd think it would be easier to handball than it would be to kick in those conditions. But there were so many mental lapses that had nothing to do with the weather. You would also think that slippery ground, while it may cause them to blow a tire here or there, would probably also create havoc for the Collingwood defenders when they try to emerge against that Fremantle forward pressure that we've talked about and been so high on this year. That said, it does help that Collingwood's defenders are a seasoned group. Having someone like Darcy Moore back there really makes a difference, and they never really seemed overwhelmed by that pressure. I was concerned going into this one about what effect the absence of Jack Magin would have on that group. Thinking it would force more into less desirable conditions where he'd be having to go to more of a fullback role. Braden Maynard's numbers didn't jump off the page, but he did have seven intercepts and overall played a good close range game on a lot of their top defenders. Some of that enabled more to have greater success himself. But I really want to highlight Jeremy Howe for his impact overall. He had that huge mark, which should undoubtedly be another Mark of the Week nomination for him. But he's also just a damn solid fullback, really helping send play back the other way. Eight intercepts it all for him. Just a very complete player that I don't think gets the respect for the full package that he is because he's so often in the highlights for the flashiest dimension of his game. Hal Moore and Nathan Murphy, all with eight intercepts for Collingwood, each team with 82 turnovers, but there was clearly a stretch where Fremantle just couldn't keep a handle on the ball, where their turnovers were much more impactful than the ones Collingwood were committing. Fremantle dominated in the center circle, 59-33 to on the hitouts. Sean Darcy with 44 of those himself. But the clearance numbers always tend to say more about the game, and Collingwood narrowly won those. Another great game in those center contests for Jack Crisp with eight himself, Jordan Degoe with seven, Josh Dacos with six, as well as Will Brody was going for Fremantle with the 11 of his own. The combined Collingwood effort helped counteract a performance from one of the quieter breakout players this year. Chris ended up with 27 disposals and 480 meters gained as well. Taylor Adams with 20 disposals and 9 tackles. Scott Pendlebury had 9 tackles himself. Pat Lipinski with a very active game, 29 disposals and 6 marks. Instrumental in them going forward. And to whom were they going forward a lot of the time? Even though he didn't even start in the main 22, Ollie Henry finished with 4 goals, 1 behind. Unfortunately, it was Mason Cox getting injured that brought him into the contest, but he had maybe his best game yet. At just 19 years old, he's a great spark for a team that is starting to show just how much they have in their youth movement. And to think that he's a fringe piece in their main makeup right now should get Pies fans really excited, considering they've also got the firecracker that is Jack Ginnivan, who had a couple goals himself. Will Hoskin Elliott and Brody Majacek with two as well. Death taxes and Brody Majacek soccers, I swear they are constants. And something that I've noticed about Ginnivid's game, he does something similar to Joel Selwood, where he's really good at dropping his knees just a little bit to get high contact called on him. I don't get why he's getting praised for it at this point, yet Selwood gets hounded for it. Maybe it's because we expect Collingwood to have a player that does something like this. I don't know. But it's a huge part of his game. 
And it's something that I don't think is going to change anytime soon from an umpiring perspective when there are bigger fish to fry in that regard. We'll get into that in just a moment, but quickly wanted to tie up some loose ends with some of Fremantle's numbers. Nobody kicked multiple goals for the Dockers, but Will Brody, 36 disposals, 11 clearances, 6 tackles. David Mundy, 34 disposals, a goal and a behind. Andrew Brayshaw, 31 disposals, 6 marks, and 532 meters gained. Jordan Clark, 27 disposals and 10 intercepts. And Luke Ryan, 535 meters gained and 20 disposals. Biggest long-term repercussion of this game for Fremantle, though, Sam Switkowski is being sent straight to the tribunal for a chicken wing tackle on Jack Ginnivan. That's the sort of thing that sounds like he is going to be suspended for multiple weeks. He's been a really nice piece for them in that small forward role, showing just how high his ceiling is, and it looks like they're going to be without that high ceiling for a couple of pretty important games coming up. They're taking on NARM at the MCG this coming week. Then they host Brisbane and Hawthorne before going into the bye. And really their schedule doesn't get any easier after that. They're at Carlton coming off that. And all the way through round 21, they really get no rest. So it's going to be a real test of their mettle. Some people were saying that they had a bit of an easier time to start this season. The Dockers did pick up some impressive wins in their early going. They got past Geelong at Cardinia Park, and that is always super impressive. They got over Carlton, but they're going to be running the gauntlet these next couple months, and we're going to see just how far they can go. I think they are going to be involved in one of the featured, most exciting, most appealing games of the week almost every week for the next two and a half months. So if you don't like hearing a lot about Fremantle, you're going to hear a lot more about Fremantle. As an Eagles fan... I honestly do not mind that whatsoever. It's exciting to have Fremantle be relevant again, even when West Coast aren't. With these last couple losses for the Dockers, it begs the question, who's the second best team? We know the Demons are number one. You could still make the argument that Fremantle's number two. I still think it's pretty clear they're the number two defensive team. It's reflected in number of points allowed. But who's that second best team? Is it the Dockers? Is it Brisbane? Is it Carlton? You can make a case for Geelong, St. Kilda, maybe even still Sydney. With their recent play, you can even argue for the Tigers or Bulldogs. I think the Bulldogs might be pushing it a little too far at this point. Don't think they've fully bounced back yet in some respects, but maybe if they do get on the good side of the ledger overall, they'll be in more consideration in that regard. I still say it's Brisbane. I think that their loss this round was very uncharacteristic of them and just how much they fell apart at the seams. I expect them to bounce back quickly. They have a great home for home oval advantage as well, playing at the Gabla, and that'll play even further into their hand. And don't ever sleep on their defense as well. They were without Marcus Adams this week. He was in COVID protocol, and that certainly hurt. Harris Andrews was still admirable, and I think they're proven to be a complete team. It's just a matter of them getting it done when it counts. Right now, I'd probably say... Brisbane 2 and Carlton 3. Really impressed with how they've gone without Harry Mackay. I'd be inclined to agree with you, especially when you consider the games where they've known they'd be playing without Mark Pitt and that they've been able to adjust to his absence. The two losses were games where they lost him early on and really didn't have a solution for how to play without him. Every other game, they've been able to set their lineup, 
figure out set of clearance strategies and have ways to get through it that just weren't there before. And hell, Tom DeConing is playing playing pretty well in that main ruck role now as well. May not be the spot where he's most comfortable. He's also an excellent mark, as we'll get into in just a little bit, but he's made up in a lot of ways for Pidnet's absence. The reason I still keep Carlton below Brisbane, though, is the fact that I'm not convinced that they can string together four good quarters. They tend to start really well, but it always seems like teams are able to figure them out a bit more than they can figure out their opposition going out of halftime. I want to see Carlton really be able to close out a couple key games coming up before I'm convinced they're on Brisbane's level. Whoever you think is the second best and third best team, I think it's pretty clear that the gap between one and two is bigger than the gap between two and nine, maybe even through 11th. I think 10th and 11th best teams right now in just about everyone's eyes would be some mix of Port Adelaide and Collingwood. Fuck you, Eddie. Bring back the bars. You could probably put Hawthorne and Gold Coast in the next tier following that. It's just so far, we have no reason to believe that anyone can even sniff Melbourne at all. I said at the start of this season, the middle third is going to be super crowded At this point, it's more of a middle 45 to 50%, and that is good for footing. Even if there's one team at the top that's clearly ahead of everyone, the race for those other spots is still really compelling. And I think the structure of the finals with the impact of the double chance and the big difference between getting those home and away finals the first round between getting to second getting to fifth and sixth. If you're a fan of the footy, your head ought to be on a swivel this season, shifting between games and teams, because there's so much potential for shenanigans and for surprises. Real quick, do want to touch on a couple of the umpiring things that we hinted at earlier. Guys lowering their legs or dropping to earn freeze for a high tackle, that shouldn't be rewarded. A high tackle should be punished when the tackling player clearly takes the guy high and not because... The man with the ball is dropping into it. It's just like some of these targeting or helmet-to-helmet calls you see in American football. When the ball carrier lowers his helmet, he makes himself vulnerable. He's going to get hit in the helmet more. Maybe you're aiming for his chest, but the helmet gets lowered. What do you do there? My question is, when a player visibly ducks into a tackle, do you think a freeze should be called against them? I think it's a case-by-case thing. Based on just the severity and the obviousness of it? Yeah. And depends on, you know, would it be just, you know, a typical whistle and a turnover? Would it be a ball up? How would that all be constructed? The other thing that we wanted to talk about were some of these 50s that are called for a guy basically playing on not realizing that there's been a whistle. They call a delay of game. These players are expected to immediately hear these whistles and react when there are 35 other players, plus the officials on the ground, and usually these calls have been made in games with really big crowds on hand, which make it even tougher to hear. And I think that's on the umpires for not being aware of the situation. I feel like that's one case where it's more likely that umpire discretion is to blame there rather than a directive. I feel like even with whatever the head of umpiring says, the individual umpire should bear the responsibility for understanding the situation, and yes, keeping play at a reasonable pace, but being forgiving considering the circumstances in which these games are played. It's been a very long episode. There's been a lot to talk about, but as we wrap up every one of these recaps, we've got to go over the nominees for Mark and Goal of the Week. First off, 
The round nine winner of Mark of the Week was appropriately Tom DeCoding, flying off Nick Haynes. Goal of the Week was somehow given to Dane Zorko for his dribbler from the boundary instead of Toby Nankervis, who got wrapped up by Max Lynch, spun around, and still scored anyway. That is now the second time that Toby Nankervis has been robbed within nine rounds. We could be sitting here ahead of Brownlow night, looking at the nominees, and being ready to fashion our own film NASA medal for Toby Nankervis because he'll have all three in our eyes. He is a nominee for Mark of the Week for this round, but spoiler alert, he doesn't deserve to win this one. Mentioned the courageous mark he had earlier on in the episode, went back with the fly of the ball, collided with, I think it was Archie Perkins, wasn't quite able to tell as he brought it in. Good intercept mark, help reverse play. Tom DeConing also got nominated for the second week in a row with a springboard off a fellow Ruck Tom in Tom Hickey, but Jeremy Howe exists, and he decided to perch on Matt Tavener's shoulder for a good second before marking himself. Howe clearly is the winner, I think DeConing second, Van Curvis third. What makes Howe special is that he didn't just bounce off Tavener's back, he said he hung on his shoulder. It's one thing to get leverage off an opponent's back, to do it off the shoulder should be physically impossible. It was an awesome play. And just one shoulder as opposed to two, you see some marks where the player is able to get on both shoulders, but the balance of the self-control needed to be able to do that on just one shoulder makes me think that Howe might just get his second mark of the year. It's amazing he's only won one of those. Goal of the week nominees, I think there's a clear winner here, but three pretty solid ones. First off, the rare set shot nominee, because it's Jeremy Cameron's torpedo from 55 meters after a third quarter siren. Not only a great looking shot, but an impactful one as it serves as the exclamation point, capping off a 33-0 run. He had Buddy Franklin from the center square, and it made it there just about on the fly. I don't think it bounced even once. I believe it was on the full, making it more impressive in that respect. But I mentioned the clear winner earlier. Joel Jeffrey intercepted a Tim O'Brien handball and kicked one over his shoulder, part of his bagful in his rising star performance. Great to see a new Gold Coast Sun emerge, and hoping that he and some of the others will actually stick around and see some success. Any goal you kick with your back to the posts is incredible. This was one of those, that's your winner, that's your goal of the week. That was episode 25 of Americans Watching the Footy. We will see you again in just a couple days for episode 26, our round 11 preview. For now, find us on Twitter at AmericansFuddy. Find me at Castle Media. Find him at BenjaminHK01. And find Brian the Footy Cat on Instagram at CatNamedBrian. The first part of the Sir Doug Nichols round was entertaining enough for two. Luckily, there's still another one to come. See you soon.